Hi everyone, this is Angel and Judy. We're going to be sharing from today's DT in Exodus chapter 20, the famous passage on the Ten Commandments. But before we hop into the Ten Commandments and some of them that we want to talk about, we just want to start with the introduction. In verse 1 and 2 it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Like this verse in verse 2 reminds us of the basis for the Ten Commandments. It starts with reminding Israel of who God is and what He has done. He is the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and slavery. In other words, God's reminding them of his love and grace for them. God who covenanted with them and who came down to rescue them, not because of their merit, but simply out of his love for them. In the NIV application commentary, it says, quote, the law, in other words, is connected to grace. It is based on God's gracious act of saving his people. It is not a condition of becoming God's people, for that has already happened in Exodus. They now receive rules for holy living so they can become more and more God's holy people, end quote. Ten Commandments were given not as a rubric through which to earn God's favor. Favor was already given as evidenced by the Exodus. It was meant as a blueprint to show us how we are to live in order to become who he wants us to be. In Exodus chapter 19, 4 through 6, God says to Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This gives us a picture of God that's very different than this disapproving boss that's constantly checking the Ten Commandments to catch us in ways that we fall short. That's the picture I had of God as a kid, especially when I read the Ten Commandments. That's not what we see here. No, it's a God who loves already showers us with grace and mercy and calls us his own and now he has high hopes for how we ought to be like a father to his child god's vision is that we would become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation people who are set apart so as to draw others to know his love for them in verse 3 the first commandment says you shall have no other gods before me this first commandment establishes how god is supposed to be the only god for the israelites this is pretty radical given that most religions are polytheistic especially egypt where they worship many gods, including Ra, the sun god, and Pharaoh was supposed to be the son of Ra. But after the ten plagues, God shows Pharaoh and the Israelites that God is the only God who has total power and control over all, and with darkness, even having power over the sun. After 400 years of being enslaved in Egypt, this first commandment would be very difficult for the Israelites to accept. No other gods put all our hopes and dreams in this one God who saved us out of Egypt? And like Angel said from Exodus 19 verses 5 to 6, we see a picture of why God rescued these Israelites, so that they can become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God has salvation in mind, not just for the Israelites, but also for the rest of humanity. But God chooses to work through people, first through Moses to rescue the Israelites, as we saw in Exodus 3, and now through the Israelites to rescue all mankind. God has that same holy vision for us too, to be the church, the kingdom of priests and a holy nation, as it says in 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In the same way that God rescued the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, God has rescued each of us out of our slavery and sin and living for the gods of this world, the gods of career, idols of money, success, and living for ourselves so that we could be a people who can reflect God's holy character and share this goodness of salvation with others. Closely linked to this first commandment is thou shalt not make any idol or carved image for yourself. And so why not? Why do we, why would we make a carved idol for yourself? Especially if you experience God saving you from Egypt and all his power and might. 
Well, to have a carved idol localizes God in some way. You can put it in the corner of the room, in an altar. You can come to him when you have need and access his power. When you don't need it or you don't want it, you can just leave it there and go somewhere else. It makes God convenient. I think one of the scary parts about God is that he demands that you follow him in all areas of your life. That can mean that in any moment your life could change. If the pillar of fire moves, you move as well. It means that you cannot hold on to anything because if it is demanded of you, it is even your only son, then you are to surrender it. And we resist that because of pride. We want to be able to control our life, hold on to a certain boundary to what God can claim. Like last week's Passion Week sermon jams on Peter and Pilate, that's such a temptation to localize God, and in that way we do make him into a carved image. I'm reminded of Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe when Lucy asked Mr. Beaver if Aslan is safe. And he says, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you, end quote. He's not safe. Anyone alive is not safe, but God is good. And from the beginning in verse 2, God reminds us of that. And if he's good, then to follow him is to end up in a place that is good. To refuse that is to live oppositely. And we see echoes of that in verse 5, where we see that both obedience and disobedience have far-reaching consequences. We don't see that in our own short-sightedness, but God does. And in his love, he is jealous for us not to go in that direction. One difficult question that comes up is, why is God unfair? And that could be interpreted from verses uh, 5 through 6. It says, You should not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. I thought about this issue as I was reading the Holiness of God excerpt in the Passion Reader last week. It was written by R.C. Sprawl. In his brawl explains how God's justice and mercy are often confused by humans, how we take God's mercy for granted because God is usually merciful and not just. The big question we should ask as sinners against a holy God is not, why does God punish sin to the third and fourth generation? But we should ask ourselves, why does God extend mercy towards sinners even for a moment when it was said in the Garden of Eden that the soul who sins shall die? Verse 6 says here that God's steadfast love will be to thousands, essentially forever. So God is shown to be far more merciful towards us as sinners than we deserve. And also in the commentary, it noted how human experience of sin and iniquity reveals verse 4 to be true. There's a famous quote that talks about sin. It says, sin takes us further than we want to go, keeps us longer than we want to stay, exacts a price higher than we want to pay. I think this includes generational sins, like how children of alcoholic parents have a higher chance of becoming alcoholics themselves. We have to see that it is God's undeserved mercy that we should marvel at, rather than considering it to be unfair that sin is passed on to the next generations. And then finally, I want to talk about this one commandment about the Sabbath. So this commandment about the Sabbath is actually given quite a few verses, and it's really important because through this, God wants us to trust Him for our future and shows us how He wants us to prioritize connecting with Him. You know, back then it was an agricultural society where every day was important for planting, weeding, caring for crops, harvest. Every day can mean a difference between a good crop and a bad one. And here, God is telling them to take every seventh day off to focus on Him. Quote, a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Where not only could they not work, but neither could their entire family, slaves, livestock, or anyone within their gates. It's really costly. And yet it's an opportunity for them to remember who it is that's sustaining them. It's God who will take care of them. And they are to make serving and connecting Him a priority, even over the seemingly essential tasks of caring for their land. Through the Sabbath, God is saying, Trust me, just as I've taken care of you to rescue you from Egypt, so I will continue to be with you. So take this day to remember what I've done and connect with me. 
that would have set them apart from the nations and shown the other people how seriously they took God. And then the other nations would see how God took care of them and they could see that God indeed was real. This commandment always challenges me because there's always never-ending stuff to do. For students, there's always more stuff to study, problems to do. For the staff, tasks to execute, things to plan and think about. And it's hard to make time for Sabbath. Even when it's built into our schedule, DTs, prayers, and Sundays, it's hard to make it truly holy and set apart for God. To shut out the distractions, list of things to do, and just be at rest to connect with God. And why is that? Because at the core, there's this disbelief that we still have in God. Will He really provide? Feeling like I have to work hard and be stressed and anxious in order to provide contingencies or take care of it myself because what if He doesn't come through? But these Sabbaths are an opportunity for us to exercise trust in God put all these other things aside and really connect to him, focusing on him and allowing him to provide for all of our needs. And so I think this 10 commandments have a lot to teach us. So hopefully you can get a lot out of them. We'll talk to you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye.